This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast, and I'm the host, Rumin Islam. Today, you will hear the first part of our concluding episode for the Tell Me How series. In this series, we covered important topics in a number of areas. For example, we talked about digital technologies and markets, the energy transition, climate and crises, transport and development, public-private partnerships in infrastructure. And running through all these topics was a very important underlying theme, innovation for economic progress. I wanted to revisit some key insights from our guests. Let's start by taking digital technology. Three important areas we dealt with are the digital divide, cybersecurity, and competition policy. One of the items we discussed, inequality in digital access and usage, continues to be a concern in all economies, but particularly in poorer ones. The good news is that there are continuous innovations that lower prices for users. And there's also a lot that policy can do to increase access and usage. Key elements being a supportive regulatory framework for private investors, promoting competition in the telecommunications sector and in related markets, and making sure that there is a mechanism for funding the poorest users. Let's hear our expert, Tim Kelly, on this topic. Now, you need both physical investment in new productive network infrastructure, but you also need regulatory changes, and one tends to follow the other. And our experiences that are that regulatory constraints may be preventing the expansion of the network and access to the existing networks. And in some countries, uh, in some cases, companies are making large profits on services that rely on high-speed networks, but not necessarily reinvesting those profits in new telecom infrastructure. We also discussed the state of cybersecurity, which depends on market dynamics as well as on public policy. Regulatory frameworks and national guidelines that support transparency, standards for information disclosure and sharing, and those that assign responsibility, allocate losses in case of attacks or breaches in security, are very important in determining how much cybersecurity there is in markets. Professor Tyler Moore explains. The good news is that, you know, we've identified some market failures, information asymmetries and externalities, and this motivates the need for a policy intervention uh, to try to correct for them. And, you know, there, there are a few standard approaches you might try, and many of them can be put into two buckets. You have ex-ante re- safety regulation and ex-post liability. So ex-ante safety regulation uh, is used whenever the harm is potentially so great that you want to prevent it from happening in the first place. You don't want your electrical grid to be taken down by an attacker, so you can impose some rules that would mandate some level of security investment to fix a problem. But a world where innovative digital technologies are everywhere needs a new kind of well-informed management that customizes cybersecurity measures to their firm's particular needs, where leaders understand the potential holes in their systems 
and the consequences of inaction. And they take action to support innovative cybersecurity measures. Expert Neil Daswani explains why this is important. I think we live in a world today where a lot of organizations primarily work to comply with a whole bunch of these security compliance standards. But the problem is that the overwhelming majority of organizations that have been breached were compliant. Uh, the compliance involves checking hundreds of checkboxes, satisfying minimal criteria for all of them, and has not necessarily helped in preventing all of, all of these breaches. Market actors such as cyber insurance firms can help promote tighter cybersecurity, especially through innovative business models that help manage risk, especially for smaller, uncorrelated attacks, not systematically important ones. Let's hear expert Daniel Woods. One aspect of that I believe should be celebrated and that is how cyber insurance has created these incident response teams who are engaged via a hotline that's manned 24 seven. And in particular, we should see this as insurance setting up essentially this fire brigade of cybersecurity. But still, there's a lot of work to be done. Still on digital technologies, we considered whether big tech was so big that it was stifling competition and innovation. Whether merger and acquisition policy could be designed to better protect newcomers and the welfare of consumers and society. We learned how difficult it is to make relevant determinations, such as the size of the relevant market, the potential innovation lost, the distribution of profits, and how important it is to have regulatory cooperation across borders, learning from others' experiences. For example, with respect to app purchases, taxes on revenues or ads, third-party restrictions on the use of platforms, and data usage, among others. In this regard, Professor Michael Katz says the following. How strongly do the merging firms compete with one another? What does the evidence say? What does the evidence tell us about whether there are other firms that they would continue to compete with after the merger? So get less hung up on how do we put things in this market definition box of in or out. You know, when you do merger analysis, it's largely a predictive exercise. You're asking yourself, if the firms are allowed to merge, what will happen? And how does that compare with what would happen if they're not allowed to merge? In episodes covering the energy transition, we had some rather exciting sessions dealing with renewable energy technology, policies and financing to support their adoption, and on the other side, managing the transition. We even had a session about valuing renewable energy assets in national wealth. We first handled innovation in battery technology. Battery storage capacity is critical to advance the use of renewable energy whose production is variable. Battery store energy, essentially electricity, and we use it everywhere in machines and cars and homes. Costs have been falling, technology has been improving, but much more progress is needed on both fronts. 
we also discussed how policy and regulatory frameworks need to be put in place to legally enable their use, to integrate and maximize battery use in our electricity systems today. Let's hear from our expert Chandra Govindralaju on this. That's because wind and solar power output is variable and uncertain, as one can imagine. For example, output of a solar PV changes in seconds when a cloud passes by. Wind also changes its power and you know direction. So that's the issue. And for example, if no regulations explicitly state that battery storage can provide grid services, utilities may, may be unwilling to procure services from a battery storage provider or a system. Secondly, there are a number of metals and minerals such as lithium, cobalt or nickel that are needed for batteries, but which are mined only in a handful of countries. The markets for these precious elements are being affected not only by rising demand for green energy, but also they're boosted by policy and changing consumer preferences, and also by volatility in fossil fuel markets. And while revenues from mining could be used to support livelihoods in poor countries, improper practices can worsen environmental and social problems or intensify the search for substitutes. Policies to manage these are needed if countries wish to maximize revenue potential. Interestingly, rising insecurity in fossil fuel markets is highlighting potential risks in critical mineral sectors too. Let's hear expert Chris Sheldon on this topic. And one thing is very important, as the demand for the minerals really takes off and the countries, they really need to manage their revenues. You know, just, um, you know, they're, they're exchanging essentially an asset in the ground, a natural asset, for cash, for a financial asset. But eventually those resources are going to run out. Um, now, the first step in managing an asset, of course, is knowing how much you have. And now let's hear expert Daniele Laporta. Even if we scale up recycling rates for minerals like copper and aluminum by 100%, recycling and reuse would still not be enough to meet the demand for renewable energy. Renewable energy technologies offer the potential of cheap energy in the future. After all, sunshine is free. So on a recurring basis over the longer term, you can imagine that this is cheaper than paying for oil and gas or coal. Yet... Like the case with commercialization of most new technologies, upfront investments have to be made to allow their use to change systems as needed. Think of charging stations, think of building solar plants and wind turbines. All this requires finance. The timing of costs and benefits is a hurdle to the transfer of technology. Another hurdle is that there's always a certain amount of risk related to investments in technology in new areas or in new countries. Policy and reforms can help manage both risks and raise incentives for investment in technology. For poorer countries, external support will facilitate the transition. Let's hear expert Dimitrios Papathanasio on this. It's a huge challenge, but there is also still a huge economic opportunity. You do have people that even today are willing to pay quite a bit 
for basic uh, electricity services and for, for relatively small quantities of electricity services. Now, the question is, can this be delivered otherwise? And the answer is yes. Uh, today, you can easily install uh, a small grid with solar panels, uh, a battery bank, and this can serve a whole village. And renewable energy resources can add to a country's wealth too. Let's hear from expert Gregorz Pleskovich. So by the same token, the renewable energy uh, can be treated as economic assets only when they are generating the flow of economic rent under current markets and uh, physical conditions. So for instance, a remote river with no hydropower uh, generation facilities on it is not an asset, is not a, a renewable energy asset. The two key findings were that, first of all, the value of the assets is major, is large. So what we found out that uh, in the last few years, in these 15 countries, the value of hydropower wealth ranged between one and four trillion dollars on annual basis. And the second, what we found out by <laughs> the size of this range, that uh, these values have been quite volatile. So what about managing the transition? For example, moving away from coal and fossil fuels? Well, this means restructuring entire segments of economies with social and political repercussions. It means ending subsidies for fossil fuels, adhering to the notion of a just transition that explicitly takes social impacts into account are key to moving ahead. Should governments invest in the future or help disengage from the past? Both, it turns out. So innovative ways of restructuring and repurposing assets, bringing in new investors, retraining and supporting labor are key elements of this transition. Listen to expert Chris Sheldon on this. Yeah, that's really the most central question. And there's more than one set of people affected. Obviously, there's the workers. They're directly impacted by closure. But there's also other community members in the region that get affected. The workers typically receive either early retirement if they're close to retirement or um, packages to, um, to support them for retraining or developing new skills for new jobs. Uh, some even start new business ventures. And still on this topic, a tax on fossil fuels or a carbon tax is an important policy measure to support the energy transition. The carbon tax is used to shift economic activities towards lower energy intensity or clean energy use. This restructuring has differing distributional impacts across countries and between rich and poor people within countries the latter of whom may lack access to energy or operate in informal markets. To support an equitable transition, each country will need policies tailored to their particular circumstances. Listen to Professor Jan Steckel as he explains this. I think for designing a successful reform, it's important to go beyond the standard economist toolbox. So we often prefer to make a lump sum transfer, a climate dividend, the same amount to everybody. However, countries might have institutional difficulties to set this up, how to transfer the money, how to reach the people in need. Therefore, we increasingly also think of using the existing targeting mechanisms.
So let me end here for the first part of our final episode. And don't forget to tune in next week for the second part. Thank you and bye for now.